about the business side of the church or what our plans are, different things like that. Uh, we're in the middle of finalizing details with regard to the new lease, so we'll be communicating some things about that as well as some things that are going on with uh, Dean Bible Ministries, things like that. So it's a good, um, it's an important meeting to be, uh, to come to, even if you're not a voting member. I'm not aware, Alan's not in here, I'm not aware of anything we're voting on, but it's important just to be up to date on what is going on. Also, we need to keep praying for staff and volunteers for Camp Arete this summer. Uh, pray for the pastor's conference that's coming up. Um, also, we have the uh, brochure for the for the Israel trip, for the 2016 Israel trip. The dates are December 20th to December 31st. We'll get back. We'll leave Israel late on the 30th, get back on the 31st. And this will shape up to be a good trip. A lot of people want to know all the details now. You can't get all the details now. A lot of things don't come together till the morning before we go there. Isn't that right? And some things that you hope and plan to do, that morning comes and it doesn't happen. But um, we have more things to do. I think um, with the exception of maybe one or two people I know, we do a lot more on a trip to Israel than just about anybody. And it's a good teaching time and a good time to go to a lot of different places. And it will expand understanding the afternoon, I believe. But I tried to get her for Thursday night. That didn't work out. But I got an email uh, yesterday from Dave Welch, who's the president of the Houston Area Pastors Council, wanting to know if we could host a breakfast event from 9 to 10.30 Friday morning here at West Houston Bible Church. And so uh, you all are also invited if you would like to come. Uh, it's late notice, so we probably won't have a tremendous number of people show up. So if you can come, that would just be nice to have a few more people in the audience, and it uh, should be uh, pretty interesting. Dr. Kokanen spoke here a couple of years ago, and uh, she's she's very knowledgeable. I've gotten to know her over the years going over, over to Israel. And, in fact, just as a preview of coming attractions for this year, I, uh, Yad Vashem has had a program for six or seven years called a Christian Leadership Seminar. It is a study course. It is a, it used to be seven days, now it's a ten day study course. And they bring in, um, <clears throat> they provide a scholarship for the room and board of participants for the ten days that, that, uh, the course goes on in Israel. They bring in the top Holocaust scholars in, in Israel to lecture on many different aspects of anti-Semitism and um, <clears throat> the history of the Holocaust and a lot of different aspects related to it. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's, there's a lot of dimensions to it. And I've been wanting to be a part of that for a while. It just hasn't worked out schedule-wise. And they don't accept couples, but I applied for the scholarship for both Pam and myself this year. And Dr. Kokanen made an exception in our case, so we both got accepted and the scholarship. And then a troublemaker that I know also applied, and Dr. Ice got accepted as well. So Dr. Kokanen has no idea what is about to descend upon her in the form of Robbie Dean and Tommy Ice. 
So this is going to be, we'll be there the first two weeks in May, uh, which will be a great time. So, But I, from what I hear from people who've gone, it's also a tremendous amount of study. Uh, I was told by a friend of mine who went last year that don't plan on doing anything else during those 10 days. She runs you ragged and a lot of work, but it will be. I'm really interested in studying a lot on the history of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and that, so it'll be quite interesting. Anyway, that's enough for uh, introductions. I was telling a friend of mine about that today, and they made a comment that I thought I should share with you. They said, you need to thank the people at West Houston Bible Church who give you the opportunities to do these things. He said, you have no idea the encouragement it is to see a pastor who recognizes the need to continually educate himself and push himself and to go on the mission field and to do these other things that you do because so many pastors don't provide that kind of example for the congregations and that is so needed. That's a, you know, and that means a lot to, I, she said, I hope it means a lot to your people. It in, enhances your teaching and it means a lot to those of us who are out there, uh, live streaming. So that was his expression of, um, of his appreciation to the church for letting me go on these things. And that's true. So anyway, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to come together, assemble around your word, fellowship around your word, uh, because our fellowship is with you by virtue of God the Holy Spirit. When we confess sin, we are restored to fellowship. And when we are restored to fellowship, then our fellowship is primarily with you, but also with others. And Father, we're thankful that we have the truth of your word that we can rely on. And we pray that you would continue to encourage us and strengthen us in your word, and especially as tonight we study about God the Holy Spirit, that he will be uh, more real to us, and we can understand his role in the Old Testament in ways we have not before. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Got one other announcement I want to make, and I want to talk about it just a little bit before we get into our lesson, and that is that sometime last night, Dr. Charles C. Ryrie, Dr. Charles Ryrie, who for many years was the uh, chairman of the theology department at Dallas Theological Seminary and the head of the graduate school, and who's the author of numerous books, went to be with the Lord. And I kind of suspected this would happen soon because Saturday Tommy called him and called me right afterwards and said, Robbie, I just talked to Dr. Ryder and he sounded horrible. Sounds like he's on his deathbed and he actually was. Um, and uh, anyhow, he went to be with the Lord this morning and he was a great man. He was a tremendous believer. He was a scholar. He was a gentleman. Uh, he had... Um, uh, quite a distinct impact on students uh, because of his his style. He was very quiet. He was a, a rather frail looking man. He was of slight stature. He wasn't. Uh, he was probably about five ten or eleven. But he, even when when I first met him, he was probably forty nine or fifty years old. And I thought if we were outside and there was a five mile an hour wind, it would blow him over. And and he um, he always had problems after he reti- retired from the seminary in the early 80s. Uh, it was forced on him because he was on had been on a missions trip down in South America and he contracted hepatitis, which almost killed him. And he took him a long time to recover from that. But he was a, he was a scholar. He wrote uh, numerous books, 
and uh, many, many more uh, technical articles. He was one of the most significant voices for dispensational theology. His book, Dispensationalism, uh, is is a basic textbook for dispensational theology. You've been taught a lot of it because of what I've done. That's my background. I had doctor. I didn't have him for dispensationalism. I had him for two courses in seminary. I had him for bibliology my first semester. In the first week I was there, I just had to pinch myself thinking I was sitting in a class and Dr. Ryrie was teaching. And then I had him my last year for what was called senior uh, senior theology. And what prepared me for senior theology was being at the teen class at Baraka Church because the way it was set up was that that you had about 50 men in the class, and you, he would just go to, you had assigned seats and he would just go down the row and you knew that, well, I'm, I got called on last week, so I got a break for at least one, maybe two class periods. But when it, but he would give you a buy. You got three buys or four buys during the semester, something like that, where you could just say, no, pass, and, and that was okay. But you had a reading. You had, we had this textbook. That was an anthology of different articles related to all the different areas of theology. And they were written by a spectrum of different evangelical theologians, some of which were you agreed with, some of which you didn't agree with, some of which you might agree with on some things. And you would have to read those chapters and know everything. You had to be conversant with what was in the footnotes, and you had no idea what questions he would ask you, and he would come to you, and he would he would ask you a question, call on you, and say, Mr. Dean, uh, and then he would start to ask questions. He said, well, uh, Dr. So-and-so makes this statement on page such-and-such, and, such, and uh, do you agree with it or disagree with it, and tell me why? And then what do you think about that footnote that he uses on this page? And are you familiar with that work? And what do you think about that? And and then he would just grill you until he decided to move on to the next person. And then he would grill them. And then he would move on to the next person. But it taught you, just as the teen class at Baraka Church did, it taught you a little bit about poise. Taught you to be well prepared for every class because you didn't know when you would be called on, and it taught you criti- to, to develop your critical thinking skills because that's what he was going to ask you. So, at, by the end of your four years at Dallas Seminary, you would have already gone through all of the branches of theology, and this was the capstone, sort of the review of all of the theology that you had learned uh, learned over the years. And he is the one who had devised that course. So. He was a he was a good pedagogue pedagogue. He was a good teacher. He was a gracious man. He emulated that. There were numerous, and I don't mean two or three or a dozen. I'm talking probably well over a hundred, maybe a couple of hundred students over the course of his time on the faculty who were able to continue their education because he anonymously paid their tuition bill. God graced him out with a uh, with an independent income, and so he was able to do that, and he would support missionaries, and he would uh, pay the tuition bills for students who, um, for one reason or another, could not pay their tuition bill, and he was a man who just emulated graciousness and the grace of the, of the gospel, and he was a man who did more for 
helping students understand the significance of dispensationalism. I told Tommy today, I said, the three greats, Walford, Ryrie, and Pentecost, are all now with the Lord. And there is no one out there on the scene in the theological academic environment except for Mike Stollard, who's the president of Baptist Bible Seminary. He's spoken at a Chafer conference before up in uh, up in Pennsylvania that is really taking a stand. There's probably one or two others here or there. There's a couple out at Master Seminary. There's one or two others at the Bible College level. But we just don't have anybody of the scholarly stature in the seminaries uh, like Walford, Ryrie, and Pentecost, a great triumvirate um, at Dallas Seminary that really put Dallas on the map. It was their dispensational theology. Sadly, today... Um, that is not looked upon with as much favor, especially with some of the men in the New Testament department, in the theology department, and in the Old Testament department. For them, it's almost an embarrassment uh, to be dispensational. And so this is, this, is, this is sad. But Dr. Ryrie for many years also taught a Sunday school class at First Baptist Church, and he had a unique ability to try to really uh, simplify things and hone things down. The only thing I really disagreed with him about was his views on uh, walking by the Spirit and the uh, the filling of the Spirit. He did not follow Chafer or Walvert, who were his professors. He did not follow them in their uh, understanding of of uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in in the spiritual life. But outside of that, he did much. Um, and contributed much. And, of course, I know many of you have a Ryrie Study Bible, which uh, first came out when I was a student, and then a revision came out in in the 90s. He was just always a a diligent worker. Okay, Uh, tonight we're going to step back from our verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Samuel. Uh, We're in 1 Samuel chapter 10, and we're going to look at a doctrine I don't think I've ever taught this doctrine in this precise manner uh, over the years that I've been in the pastor. I've summarized most of this, but we're going to look at it in a little more detail tonight, and it is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and this is coming out of our study in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 10 because of the emphasis on the role of God the Holy Spirit coming upon um, coming upon Saul in first Samuel chapter ten verse ten. Also mentioned again in first Samuel eleven six that the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words and he became very angry and in first Samuel sixteen thirteen it is the Spirit of the Lord that comes mightily upon David. And this phrase Coming mightily upon is the same verb, we'll see it later on in the lesson, it's the same verb that was used to describe the way the Holy Spirit came upon uh, Samson in, at the end of the book of Judges. What's interesting is there's very little mention of God the Holy Spirit in Genesis. In fact, there's only only one maybe two clear references to the Holy Spirit in the book of Genesis. There's only a couple in the book of Exodus. There's more in Numbers. Uh, but where we really start seeing the Holy Spirit working in the lives of individual leaders in Israel 
is in the book of Judges, and this is still, this is now the end of the period of the Judges with the beginning of the monarchy. And so in Judges, in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, we see this emphasis on God the Holy Spirit. And then we also uh, have a lot said about the Spirit when we get into Jeremiah, or excuse me, Ezekiel and Isaiah, uh, those prophets, a couple of other references. But it, it, there, uh, there's just a huge number of references in Judges and in First Samuel as well. So we're going to begin by looking at uh, the Holy Spirit and just getting a little background on the basic doctrine of the Holy Spirit in terms of the identification of the Holy Spirit, answering the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Is he a person, a force, or an influence? And among liberal theologians, the idea is that the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God is just simply a phrase for the influence, the force of God. He's not a distinct person. Remember, liberalism, 19th century Protestant liberalism sort of has its heritage in a anti-supernatural worldview. It, it partly derives, in America at least, from the rejection of the Trinity by the Unitarians, and then Unitarians by the early 1800s began to move more and more in the direction of, of what becomes known as liberal Protestant theology. So there's all, within liberalism, there's always this, this anti-Trinitarianism. They don't understand the role of Jesus as the eternal second person of the Trinity, and they don't understand the personhood of God the Holy Spirit. So we ask this question, and in order to answer it fully, we can see, we can see examples of it in the Old Testament, but the clear revelation of it doesn't come until we get into the New Testament. So the emphasis on three distinct persons in the Godhead in the Trinity are seen in about four different passages in the New Testament. Now it's, it's referenced other places, but where we see all three members of the Trinity mentioned at Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, as referenced in Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, John immersed him in the water, and then when he brought him out of the water, the text says the heavens opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus in the form of the dove. So you have Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the dove as the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and then a voice spoke from heaven. And if you had had your MP3 recorder there, you could have recorded the sound of God the Father speaking to the people, this is my beloved Son. So you have all three members of the Trinity present at the baptism of of Jesus. Then when Jesus gives his uh, parting commission to the disciples, often referred to as the Great Commission, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the grammar shows that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are viewed equally. They're, they're not distinct. One, there's not a hierarchy, Father over the Son over the Spirit, but that they are viewed equally as the one God. There's another reference in Second Corinthians 
chapter 13, verse 14, as Paul closes out that epistle, and he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and the love of God, that's the Father, as the first person of the Trinity, and the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So all three members of the Trinity are again mentioned. The order's different. It's the Son, then the Father, then the Holy Spirit, but they are viewed as equal. And then in a passage that we studied not too long ago in First Peter, First Peter, Peter writes, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, first person of the Trinity, by the sanctification of the Spirit. Notice here the Spirit is mentioned second. By the sanctification of God the, of, of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So here you have all three members of the Trinity mentioned again. So this shows us that there are three distinct persons in the one God. The idea of the oneness of God is not a singularity. For those with a background in philosophy, God is not viewed as a monad, as you had in some of the uh, philosophers that came out of the Enlightenment. But God is a multiplicity. He is three in one. Um, philosophically, that shows that your, our ultimate metaphysical reality uh, answers the basic question that plagues all philosophy, and that is the problem of unity and diversity or the problem of the one and the many. I'll just throw that out. We're not going to talk about that. But this is the problem that you've had throughout history. It was recognized in the uh, schools of Heraclitus, and Parmenides in ancient Greek philosophy, one said everything is the same, it never changes. The other said everything is always changing. It's the issue of one and the many. And this is it's ignored basically by, by contemporary or modern uh, post-enlightenment philosophy because they can't get there. And they can't figure it out, so they just just ignore it, and they drill down on microscopic details, and modern philosophy is just a pain to study. So anyhow, we have the Trinity, and within the Trinity, each of the members of the Trinity are viewed as distinct persons, including God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit has the characteristics of a person. Now, he has intellect. He has will. He has the ability to communicate to other people. Uh, this, and he carries out the roles of a person, of an individual. So we have passages like John fourteen sixteen, and where Jesus says, "I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper." Now, exegetically, that word for another means another of the same kind. So the first helper, the first paraclete, is who? God the Son. It's Jesus. And he will give you another helper, another paraclete of the same kind. Jesus is a person, therefore God the Holy Spirit, to fulfill his role as a comforter, must also be a person. And... Then in John 15:26, if you know, all of these are coming out of the upper room discourse, Jesus' final instructions to the disciples before he goes to the cross. He says, um, but when the helper comes, the parakletos, the comforter comes, 
whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Now, what kind of verb is testify? It's a verb of communication. That means he's going to communicate. And so that, again, indicates that he is a, he's a person. He also has will. He makes decisions. In Acts 16:7, as Paul is on his second missionary journey, he's uh, walk, come across uh, from the southeast to the northwest in what is now Turkey, and he was trying to go into Asia and also to his, which would have been to his left, to his west, and also to Bithynia, which would have been to the northeast. But he says the Spirit did not permit them. So this is a function of the will of God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit did not um, permit them. In 1 Corinthians 12, 11, the Holy Spirit is the one who distributes spiritual gifts, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So that shows that his will, the independent volition of the third person of the Trinity, is involved again, indicating that he is a... He is a a person. Then we have a couple of other passages, for example, in John uh, 16, 14, and in 14, 26. He will glorify me, talking about God the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Now, this also indicates communication. A lot of these verses I'm using are the same ones, so they're, they're kind of overlapping. But in John 16, 14, the he there is the Greek pronoun echinos, which is a masculine pronoun. But the word pneuma is a neuter noun. So you're using a masculine pronoun to refer to a neuter noun, which is grammatically incorrect unless you're talking about a person. So by talking this, just the, the subtle use of this uh, third-person masculine pronoun here indicates uh, the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And that's also true in the second verse there, uh, John fourteen twenty six. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he, referring back to Numa, the Spirit, will teach you all things. So he uses a kainos to emphasize the personhood of God, the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Also in these verses, the term uh, for comforter, uh, parakletos, should be translated a helper or a comforter or an encourager. It is not correct to translate it comfort, counsel, or encourage. So it's talking about a person there. So just the way that word is used and the word that is used indicates this. Also, we see that the... um, that the Holy Spirit is used and talked about in a way that can only be true of a person. Walk by means of the Spirit is a concept. You're walking with someone. It is a, it, it makes sense if the Holy Spirit is a person, uh, not, not a force. He's, he's, you're walking by means of the Spirit. That fits within other, other, uh, verses. Acts 15, 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So that shows that he, he's a person. He has, uh, he makes decisions. It's good to the Holy Spirit. 
In First Peter one two, we talk about the um, sanctification of the Holy Spirit, and in Jude twenty, you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying by means of God the Holy Spirit. So He's involved in our communication. All these verses taken together reinforce the idea of personhood. We also see that the New Testament emphasizes the full, undiminished deity of God the Holy Spirit. One example of this is in the book of Acts, in the situation with Ananias and Sapphira. You all remember that story where you have uh, Ananias and Sapphira coming, and they're, they, they've sold some property because they want to be, and they're going to give some money to the church. There's nothing wrong with that. They want to be thought of well as giving money to the church. There's nothing wrong about that. But they wanted the church to think that they were giving 100% to the church, and so they lied about it, and they both died under divine discipline because they were yielding to temptation. Now, Peter says... Ananias, in Acts 5.3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, Satan isn't the content. I've run into a few people over the years who think that Satan is the one filling the heart. No, Satan is the as the content. Satan is the one who's filling the heart with the, with the content of the desire to lie. He is tempting them. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You can only lie to a person. You lie to the Holy Spirit, and then in the next verse, as he concludes, Peter says, you have not lied to men, but to God. See, he is defining the Holy Spirit as God. God, The Holy Spirit equals God. God equals the Holy Spirit. He's also given or ascribed divine works. We know the Holy Spirit is divine because he is said to do things that only deity can do. He created. In Genesis 1-2, he moves on the face of the deep. Job 26-13, and in Job 33-4, he also is involved in breathing life into God's creatures. So he's involved in creation. We'll look at those verses uh, a little more. He's involved in regeneration in John 3, 5, and 6. It is the Holy Spirit who regenerates us. Titus 3, 5, it is the Holy Spirit who regenerates us. And the Holy Spirit is also involved in bringing life to the dead in resurrection. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, so uh, the Spirit raises Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so this emphasizes that God the Holy Spirit is involved in resurrection. Divine attributes are also ascribed to him. He's said to be omnipotent. Romans fifteen nineteen says, In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. That's omnipotence, the power of God. Uh, he distributes spiritual gifts. Only God can do that, 1 Corinthians twelve eleven, The one in the same spirit works all these things. So he is omnipotent. He is also omniscient. And this is mentioned in a number of verses. Uh, I just put a couple of them up here. Isaiah 40, verse 13, Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? 
The implication is nobody needs to teach him because he already knows everything. He is omniscient. And that's the focal point of verses 13 and 14. Romans 11.34 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Again, uh, it's the Holy Spirit in context. So he is omniscient, and in Psalm 139.7 through 10, He's also expressed there, as, as David says, where can I go from your spirit? I can't escape your spirit. Your spirit is everywhere. He's omnipresent, so I can't go anywhere. So this is an understanding and expression of, of God the Holy Spirit. He is also uh, given uh, honor of deity, as he is mentioned, along with the Father and the Son in passages that we've already looked at, like Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and 2 Corinthians uh, thirteen fourteen. We see the work of the Spirit in, in the work of the Trinity. There's a division of labor in the Trinity. The idea of the assembly line and the division of labor did not originate with Henry Ford, as you were taught in your high school history class or economics class. It, it probably started with the Lord at creation, if not before. God the Father is the architect. He's the planner. He is the one who oversees everything. It is the Son who's portrayed as the project manager or the construction supervisor and the one who reveals to mankind the Father. No one, John 1 says, no one has seen the Father at any time, but the, uh, but He, the Son, the Logos, has exegeted Him or revealed Him. The Holy Spirit is the project engineer. He's the one who has, as it were, boots on the ground, anthropomorphically speaking, and he oversees, he also oversees divine revelation. He's the agent of divine revelation, and he is the one who brings to completion the plan of the Father. So the Holy Spirit's involved in bringing together creation, regeneration, and divine revelation, and in the church age, He's the one who empowers the individual life of the church-age believer. So this just gives us background to understand that God the Holy Spirit is a distinct person in the Trinity. He is clearly revealed in the Old Testament and clearly understood to be a part of the ministry of God and God the Holy in the Old Testament. And yet that is not fully developed or clearly taught uh, in terms of specifics until you get into, into the New Testament. So let's look at just some terminology. The word translated spirit is the Hebrew word ruach. And ruach is very much like its Greek counterpart, pneuma. Now, if you think about the word pneuma, we have brought that over into English in a lot of ways. You have have it in words like a pneumatic drill or pneumonia. Pneumatic drill operates on the power of air. Pneumonia has to do with your your lungs and your uh, inability to breathe. Uh, it, it's ex- pneuma is expressed in um, uh, a lot of different uh, different terms. And so we, we see that, and its basic meaning has to do with wind or breath or a breeze or spirit or mental attitude. There's seven or eight different meanings for pneuma in the New Testament, and that's 
uh, pretty much the same thing that we find in the old in the Old Testament. The word the word ruach is found over 387 times. The reason I put that in there is it depends on the text. And I looked, I consulted about four different sources and came up with different numbers, 387, 388, 389, over 387. So that's best generic, but there's a lot of terms there, but it's used a lot of different ways. It can mean breeze or breath or wind of air. And in breath... It is sometimes associated with the Greek word, I mean the Hebrew word neshama, which refers to the breath of life that is given from God. It also, because air and wind disappear, if something goes into the breeze, you know, we have this idiom even in English. If some, uh, uh, some crook or somebody that the police are looking for just suddenly drops out of sight, we say, what's the idiom? He's in the wind. He's just disappeared. He's gone. He's vanity. It's vanity. So it refers to something vain or futile. It refers to the breath of God in some passages, which supports life. It's described as the breath of life, in, and it's used in Genesis chapter 6, verse 17. It's also used to refer to the human spirit, whether it's talking about just the inanimate or the part, I mean, yes, the inanimate part, or the immaterial part, rather, the immaterial part of man, uh, where it talks about, for example, the spirit of Pharaoh. That's talking about his uh, immaterial part. It could be referring to his mentality, um, but in this sense it refers to the mind, the intellectual frame of mind, or the mental attitude of somebody, their temperament. Sometimes it refers to the courage or specific attitudes of man, and so that's uh, one sense of ruach. And then in terms of this study, it is also used to refer to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, or the Spirit of Yahweh. But there's also a small number of references that it's just generic, I think, it could, and it could refer to just the, the, the force of God, the presence of God. Um, not in terms that uh, impersonal, but these would be rare. Maybe, maybe there's no more than two or three such sort of ambiguous references in the Old Testament. Usually, it's very clear. It talks about the the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Yahweh, and those are very, very clear that it's talking about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes God just says, "My Spirit," which can refer simply, you know, if somebody's talking about my Spirit was there, it's talking about themselves being there. So that is is one idiom. Uh, Psalm 104, verse 30 is one of the more uh, specific passages that talk about a higher view of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. There's several references to the Spirit in the Psalms that are important, but this is one of them, talking about creation, the role of God the Holy Spirit in creation and the creation of the animals. Uh, the psalmist is saying, you send forth your Spirit, they are created. It is through God the Holy Spirit that things were created. So it's referring to his role in creation. And you renew the face of the earth. This refers back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is on the face of the deep. Another example 
which shows the role of God, the Holy Spirit, in the, in the ministry of the prophets, is that Elijah talks about the role of the Spirit in empowering Elijah, and Elisha requests that he has a double portion of the Spirit, and that should be capitalized. It usually isn't, but it should be capitalized when Elisha says, please let a double portion of your Spirit be upon me. What he's asking for is a double blessing of God the Holy Spirit in his life and in his, uh, his ministry. Now, Ezekiel has a couple of really interesting references, and what they show here is a strong view of the individual ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that this just isn't a force and it isn't some sort of uh, impersonal representation. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 12, Ezekiel says, Then the Spirit lifted me up. The Spirit is lifting him up and... Uh, moving him, and he says uh, from that place. And then also in Ezekiel 11:1, 1, then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faces eastward. And there, at the door of the gate, were 25 men. So it's the Holy Spirit who's uh, either physically transporting him, or is giving him a vision. At that time, and then one of the other more. Uh, uh, revelatory passages is Zechariah 4 6 so he answered and said to me this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel this is in Zechariah after the return from the captivity in Babylon and he says it's not by power not by might not by, nor by power that is human effort or human power but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts so there it's a distinction between the, the Lord of hosts the Lord of the armies, and his Spirit, clearly showing a distinction that that the Spirit is a distinct person from uh, Yahweh, but is viewed as fully divine. Now, there's a couple other passages that refer to the Spirit in terms of creation, and this gives us a good transition into the next section. The next point I want to look at is just looking at how the Holy Spirit appears in the Old Testament as we work our way from Genesis forward. And the last two verses, these will show up again in just a couple of more slides, showing the role of the Holy Spirit in creation. God says, or uh, I believe it's uh, one, of the, one of the friends of Job is speaking here and says, by his Spirit, he adorned the heavens showing that it is through the means of God the Holy Spirit that the actual engineering of the creation takes place. He adorned the heavens. This would relate to the creation of the stars and the sun and the moon on the fourth day in Genesis chapter 1. Job 33.4, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The role of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, in working in the intermediate means of the creation of a human being. The immediate means are through the normal sexual procreative activity, but God, the Holy Spirit, is working in and through that particular process. <coughs> okay, now the next thing is just to go through the Holy Spirit. Now, I did something interesting today. I've never done this before. 
and looking at it this way is just how the Holy Spirit is referred to as we go book by book through the Old Testament. And I was really surprised that the Holy Spirit is only mentioned uh, one, maybe two times, uh, clearly mentioned as the Spirit of God in Genesis. And it's right at the beginning, so you can't avoid it. You can't say, well, this is some sort of late development unless you're playing games with the text and you're saying, well, Genesis was just cobbled together after the um, after the exile, which is a very liberal view. And so we're introduced to the Spirit of God at the very beginning of the creation account in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, And the Spirit of God, always a term for God the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. But the oldest book in the Bible isn't Genesis. Genesis gives the account of creation, but it was written by Moses in approximately, uh, in the period from 1445 to 1406 B.C. In those 40 years in the wilderness is when um, Moses puts together uh, the Pentateuch. So it's during that time. But Job was probably written much earlier. Job lived about the time of the latter years of Abraham and the time of when um, Isaac is alive. And it is uh, uh, the, probably the earliest book, the first book to be written or to be revealed and... and uh, uh, and given. So Job gives us several references to God the Holy Spirit in the oldest book of the Bible. By his spirit he adorned the heavens, a verse we just looked at, Job 33:4, the spirit of God has made me. We also have references back uh in Isaiah 40:13 who's directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor taught him. This is in Isaiah and then Psalm 104:30 also speaks of the role of God the Holy God the Holy Spirit in creation. So we see some other references that come along and we see this in as we look at Exodus, we see the role of the Holy Spirit in giving wisdom or skill to the craftsmen Bezalel and Aholiab who build the furniture in in the tabernacle. And what's interesting, the text says, I filled him with the Spirit of God. I want you to pay attention to these words. I don't know if we're going to get all the way there tonight. But in Kings, we're going to see how Hiram, Hiram is the architect who oversees the building of the temple. It doesn't mention the Holy Spirit per se in in the verse talking about Hiram. But it says that Hiram is filled with wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship. It just doesn't mention the Spirit. So the implication is if if all these things, that everything else is there except the Spirit of God, that it is very likely that, that just as God the Holy Spirit gave wisdom to Bezalel and Aholiab, he did so later with Hiram. And... Um, the, this is not a filling of the Spirit for spiritual growth. This is not a filling of the Spirit for regeneration. This is distinct, as we're going to see. God, the Holy Spirit's role in the Old Testament was not related to sanctification. 
It was related to leadership in the nation. Now, this is one of the big questions that people ask is because when they read in Psalm 51 that David prays, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, and then they go to the New Testament and we're given the New Testament as uh, we're given the Holy Spirit as the seal or pledge of our salvation, and that's part of our understanding of eternal security. Some people get the idea that since you didn't have the indwelling or the filling of the Holy Spirit, you could lose it in the Old Testament, that you could lose your salvation. But that is a complete misunderstanding of the nature of regeneration. We've always had regeneration, and regeneration is a permanent, irreversible transformation that goes far beyond what most people ever imagine in our lives. It's a complete makeover that takes place at the instant of, of our faith alone in Christ alone. We become, in the New Testament, a new creature in Christ as a result of that. But in the Old Testament, they're still born again. They still receive a human spirit. Other aspects of the role of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, these things did not occur but they are still a new, uh, a new creation. They have this, the new human spirit. So uh, Exodus 31.3 says that God filled uh, these craftsmen with skill. Wisdom is the Greek, I mean, Hebrew word chokmah. And chokmah doesn't talk about wisdom in the sense of Greek wisdom, in the sense of being a Greek philosopher in, in intellectual, academic pursuits, wisdom in the Scripture has to do with skill. And this is where one of the passages we go to to understand what chokmah means. It has to, these guys were already uh, skilled craftsmen and carpenters, but now they're going to get a divine enhancement so that when they uh, build the furniture for the tabernacle, it is going to be exquisite. It is going to be better than anything anywhere else on the planet because they have been guided and directed by God the Holy Spirit. So this is shows that the role of the Spirit in the Old Testament is to enhance the leadership of God's covenant people. That's one reason we don't see a whole lot of mention of the Holy Spirit prior to the giving of the covenant with Moses to the Israelites at Mount, Mount Sinai. Another reference uh, that we have is in relation to Moses. Uh, nobody prior to Moses is spoken of as having this kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit. God says uh, in Numbers eleven seventeen, Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the Spirit that is upon you, and I will put the same upon them. Notice the prepositions. It's not in you. It's not a filling like God the Holy Spirit today in terms of a permanent indwelling or empowerment for the spiritual life. It's for guidance and wisdom for the leader of God's theocratic covenant people. It has to do with the leadership of the theocracy. So Moses has this... Uh, Filling of the Spirit. Not only that, uh, in Nehemiah, we learn something that isn't revealed anywhere in Exodus. And this is an intriguing little passage because in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20, it talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in instructing the Israelites in the wilderness. Nehemiah 9, 20 
uh, we Nehemiah in his prayer to God says, you also gave your good spirit to instruct them. That is the Exodus generation. How did he instruct them? Through the Torah. The, we often translate Torah as law, but Torah has as its core meaning guidance or instruction. And so here you gave your good spirit to instruct them, showing the role of God, the Holy Spirit, in the giving of the law. And you did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. So there's a role of the Holy Spirit in the giving of the law. But they rebelled. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 63.10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. God fought against the Israelites in, in the wilderness. So again, we see that they rebelled against the Holy Spirit. Isaiah sixty three eleven. Then he remembered in the days of old, remembered the days of old Moses and his people, saying, "Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who puts his Holy Spirit within them?" Another intriguing reference to the role of the Holy Spirit in the Exodus generation. Again, this isn't talking about the kind of indwelling that relates to the spiritual life, but in relationship to the leadership and guidance of of the nation. So this takes us up to um, a good breaking point, and it's right at 8.30, so that's a good place to break. Because what I want to do at this point is start drilling down a little bit into how the Holy Spirit is uh, spoken about uh, once we get into um, once we get into the book of Judges and later as we develop our understanding of God the Holy Spirit. So we'll just stop here and then we'll come back to wrap up this study uh, next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things today. Reflect upon the role and ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that this did not begin in the New Testament church, but has a background in this Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, where we see embedded there even this uh, great uh, indication of the triune God, even in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, Father, we pray that you might help us to recognize that we have a unique privilege in this dispensation with the indwelling of the Spirit and the filling by the Spirit and that we are to walk by him constantly, consistently, conscientiously relying upon him in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.